Thanks, Brian. Thankful that we do have a church. That's a great verse to, to read, that we have a church where there are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are practicing discipleship, as uh, Ed taught in our membership class this morning, um, passing along the truth of the gospel. That'll uh, come to bear even in Psalm 44, which I invite you to turn to your Bibles there. That's where we'll be at this morning, Psalm 44. We as a church have been walking through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, we're taking our sweet time because we're still in chapter 3, and that's a good thing because those chapters are so important for us as a church to to see the beginning of what God uh, did at creation, what happened in the fall, and what's what's going to happen from there. Um, but we, we've found ourselves in a really neat pattern, thanks to Michael Brown, who preached uh, a few weeks ago from Psalm 23, which is also a psalm that we'd read during the week. So you'll see this theme come up again as we have some of these Sunday breaks in, the, in between our, uh, our main series through Genesis. Uh, but this morning we're in Psalm 44, and before I read it for you, I just want to give a little bit of context because I think having that context and a few things in our mind will help you and help me uh, focus our attention on what the songwriter wants us to know. Because uh, indeed, the Psalms are a book of songs, and I think everyone in this room knows that, um, probably, but that carries a lot of important meaning to it. That means that we need to listen intently to what's been written in a particular way because songs carry meaning, and there's a lot of tools that songs use to take that meaning from just the sounds that you hear in the lyrics to the heart of the listener. One of those tools is uh, what's called tone. Uh, it's, it's the feeling, the uh, evocation, the, the, the sense of meaning that's wrapped around not just the lyrics, but the sound of the music and, and, and that kind of thing. It all works together to carry a particular tone. Um, I, I've been uh, recording uh, in the studio the last several weeks um, the, the songs that many of you know uh, we played in the past at Christmas Eve called Good News, Great Joy, telling the story of Christ's nativity. And there was this neat moment where we were in the studio and we had this song, a uh, song called Son of David, and it's a moment where Joseph is, is questioning and he's wondering. He, he's, there's a chorus that says, it, it, um, is everything that's happening really happening for a reason? And there's this longing for, God, what are you doing in the midst of this brokenness? And so we were trying to think, okay, how are we going to capture that tone in the music? And so we ended up getting an electric guitar, and if you're a musician or, or love music, that kind of thing, may appreciate some of the behind-the-scenes nature of this. You, you got a guitar, and, and we thought, okay, why, why don't we swell in, just kind of let the volume swell in these chords that are, they almost sound like, like groaning and longing. And after we put that in, we were thinking, wait a second, there's other moments in the other songs that have this tone of longing, of brokenness. And so we went to some of those other moments in those songs and found that putting that same sound in those moments worked well to communicate the tone. Um, my, my point in this illustration is this. As a listener, tone helps us grasp, grasp the meaning of the song. If we never change tone, if we, if we never get at the emotion of what's happening in a song, we, we won't, won't really be able to tell what the songwriter is really trying to communicate. We, we don't have music for us in the Psalms, but in the poetry of the lyrics, in Psalm 44, I think you're going to see a major shift in tone that will help us understand what the psalmist is trying to communicate. 
So I'm going to read it for us, the entirety of Psalm 44, and I want you to read along. Uh, I'll, re- I'll read aloud. You can read silently in your minds, and just try to track where does the tone take a major shift. It's Psalm 44, to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you catch a, a shift in tone? Maybe. A little difference between how the psalm began and where it ended up. It's quite a journey. It's quite a difference. And so what I want us to look at this morning are those two major sections on either end of that tonal shift in verse 9. There's five stanzas uh, that you see in in the psalm that are broken up by the spacing, the paragraphs. but the first two have a particular tone, and the last three have a particular tone. And I think the psalmist wants us to understand something uh, in both of those sections. Uh, back in verse 1, it says that this is a masculine of the sons of Korah. Uh, not to go into all the background, though I'd love to spend more time on it, but uh, sons of Korah, especially uh, likely in this time that the psalmist was writing, are those in charge of the worship and the music in the temple, in David's reign, those who were uh, designated by the Lord and by uh, the, the priest to, to lead the people in worship. And particularly, uh, this psalm is what's called a masquil. And there's a lot of different things that we can learn about that word. There's a lot of mystery even to it, even now. But the thing I, I want you to be aware of that I think uh, comes to bear in this psalm um, 
is maskil connotes this idea of understanding, wisdom, uh, almost like instruction. There's something that we need to understand in this psalm. That's why it was written. It's not just some guy's random prayer that's been uh, said in one particular time and we can leave it alone here. It's something that Israel used regularly to train their people uh, to worship together and to come together in a particular way. And because it's in our Bibles, we believe then the Holy Spirit has something for us to understand as well. Uh, so let's start in these first eight verses together and look at this. Um, th- this psalm that talks about both salvation and suffering, in these first eight verses, the psalmist is calling us and is calling uh, themselves and one another in Israel to remember God's salvation. If you're taking notes this morning, write that down. Remember God's salvation. That's the theme of verses one through eight. These two stanzas, uh, they, they work together to make this evident by way of remembrance, by way of even quotation of what God has done in the past. Verse 1 says, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Now, if you're an Israelite and you know the law, that's good news right there and then in verse 1. Because the Israelites were commanded from the very beginning of their calling to teach their children, to bring back the signs of remembrance that would help them see what it is that God had done. All the way back in Exodus, when God called his people out of Egypt and set them free uh, during the 10 plagues, uh, God said to Moses, hey, these plagues, in part, they're signs of remembrance so that the people now can tell their children about what's happened. Uh, Then he institutes the, the Passover feast, right? And then last plague, when God finally sets them free from the oppression of Pharaoh, Uh, through this feast of a sacrificial lamb. And he's saying, hey, you're going to do this again and again and again so that you'll remember what I've done for you. And that theme carries on all the way through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, all the way through even when the people are disciplined and kept that generation kept from going into the promised land. All of this is continually given and done so that the following generations would remember who God is and what he'd done for them. So by the time we get to then uh, Joshua's time, the time of the conquest, whenever Joshua becomes the leader who leads the Israelites into the land that God had promised to take them, God makes good on his promises. And if you think back to some of the stories at the beginning of Joshua, do you remember when Joshua leads the people to cross the Jordan River and God piles up the water on one side and they walk through on dry ground? What does Joshua tell them to do? He said, hold on, guys, before God lets the the water come back, grab some rocks and take them out. These are going to be signs of remembrance so that you remember what God has done. That's how everything really begins as they enter into this land that God is giving them. And so for the rest of the book of Joshua, then the people are finding victory because God's with them, because God's making good on his promises, right? And at the end of Joshua's life, when all the people have settled, uh, as he senses his time is nearing, Joshua gathers the people in Joshua chapter 24. Uh, and if you're catching the theme I'm following here, you probably won't be surprised that at the end of reminding them of what God has done, at the end of having them renew the covenant, what do you think Joshua grabs as a reminder? another rock. (laughs) There's a theme here, right? He grabs a rock and he sets it up and he says, hey, guys, remember, we're renewing the covenant again. Remember what God has done. Well, this psalmist who, at the very least, uh, was writing during David's time, if not later, 
uh, is showing evidence of the faithfulness of the fathers uh, and of Israel to remind their children. And we know that because these first eight verses draw heavily from Joshua 24, specifically. There's a lot of quotation here. What's neat about Hebrew poetry, it's not like English poetry where the rhymes come. Michael taught about this. I'm I'm being a little redundant, but by way of reminder, um, we, we don't get rhyme schemes that come from the vowels. We don't get rhythms that come from the syllables. Instead, a lot of Hebrew poetry, it works off of images. It works off of quoting from other sources or certain Uh, images, metaphors in life, and by bringing those into particular sections, it helps us to see uh, more clearly what the author is talking about. And so even in verse 2, there's a reference there. It says, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the the peoples, but them you set free. Keep your finger there and and, uh, turn over to Joshua 24. Let's see if there's any similar language there that the psalmist might be drawing on, specifically in verses 17 and 18. Joshua 24, the people say, For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us all in, the, in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. Let me just show you one more while we've got uh, both open. Back in Psalm 44, verse 6, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Let's see if that shows up. Check verse 12. It says, and I sent the hornet before you, who, which drove them out before you, the two kings, the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Those are just two, but there's others really in this whole psalm uh, that are pointing back to Joshua 24. This psalmist is gathering a body of evidence for the listener to say, God is the one who has brought us to this land. God is the one who has made us a people. God is the one who is our king. That's why in the middle of those eight verses, in verse four, look what the psalmist says back in Psalm 44. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Or more literally, O Lord and King, command deliverance for Jacob, for your people. Uh, it's, it's as much a cry for help, as we'll see developed in the next section of this psalm, as it is a cry of praise and of remembrance. That God is the one who has brought salvation to his people. God is the one who has established them there in the promised land It's so important for us to remember this um, because in a particular way in this psalm, we we learn how God's people remember his salvation. You might add in your notes there for this first eight verses, remember God's salvation through continual praise. That's what the psalmist is showing us, right? Because all the way after Uh, examining and giving this evidence from Joshua 24 and other sources and showing us that God is the one who in in the far past, he's the one who brought salvation. And even now, he's the one that we can call upon for salvation and deliverance because of what he's done in the past. Uh, therefore, verse, verse 8, in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. So the remembrance of God's salvation is happening through continual praise 
Uh, the, the word continually there is, uh, is the same word, I believe, as like day. And so it, it's really just saying like daily, uh, weekly, um, for me, probably hourly, minutely, half hourly. I need to remember God's salvation through continual praise. Because unlike Israel, we don't have just a past war or conflict or something like that, a, a place that you can draw a boundary line or something like that that we have hope in. We have a mighty king and savior who has defeated not armies, but death itself. Sin itself, right? That's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 55 through 57, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John talks about this similarly. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? For God's people, now looking back to what Jesus Christ has done, the one who is God and is man, who lived a perfect and sinless life, the one who died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins and rose again, we have something to remember and celebrate. We have a victory that is sure, not something we have to wonder, not something we have to uh, be concerned about coming to pass. We, we have a sure victory to look back on, not unlike the psalmist here who can look back on uh, the sure victory that brought the people into the land, the evidence of how God moved through that situation that gives him confidence, that gives him a reason to worship and praise, a reason to turn to the God who has saved us. It's going to be so important as we move into the second section. God has proven himself to us, Christian, in Christ, in the gospel. When, when we are feeling the weight of the world and the difficulty that we face day in and day out, our hope ultimately looks back to Jesus and his victory at the cross that's, that's what has to give us confidence because without that, there's not a sure victory over sin and death. There's not hope for the life to come. So it's so important that we as, as Christians apply this psalm well, that we also would remember God's salvation through continual praise. And not only that, let me add one more phrase to that for your notes that we would remember God's salvation through continual praise, that makes disciples. You're like, okay, well, where are you getting this from? He's not talking about disciples here. Well, let me unpack this. Again, don't miss what he's saying. This whole section is saying, God, we have heard what you've done because people before us have been faithful to make it known, to share it, right? That's the psalmist's points. That's what gives him confidence is that God is king and that has been made known through continual praise that's been shared to him as he grew up from his father, from his leaders, from those that are speaking into his life. That's the celebration in these first eight verses. That's, that's, that's what's happening here. And so Christian, it's a good time for us to stop and consider when we think about the things that we share that give us hope around those who are in need of hope, what are, what are those things? 
If it's not Jesus, are we not deceiving them? If it's not Jesus, are, are we not obscuring what has given us hope? Our hope is in a victory that has been accomplished by Christ. It's not in our stuff. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in our good works and our merit. It's in what Christ has done. So we ought to remember that salvation that God has given us through this continual praise and let that praise multiply. The chief end of man is to glorify God, right? That's what God made us for. So this vessel that carries the praise of God, right? It's something that should be moving in and through all aspects of our life. I love that the image of, of, uh, of fathers to children is here because that's so important throughout Scripture. Uh, we were even talking about it earlier in the discipleship class that um, if you're wondering who you're meant to disciple, if you're a parent, it's pretty clear, right? <laughs> it's your kids. Uh, what a great opportunity that God has given you to be able to through continual praise, make disciples of your kids by remembering what God has done in your life, by sharing that. Uh, there's an Anglican theologian back in the 1600s. He gave a, gave a great quote on this psalm. He said this about the fathers. They made their mouths as if they were books, wherein the noble acts of God might be read to his praise, to the drawing of their children's hearts unto him. I love that phrase. They made their mouths as if they were books, and I think for me, and, and hopefully for you, what we can pause and consider, if our mouths, if our words were made into books, what would be the theme there? What would be the tone there, right? Is it remembering and celebrating God's salvation? Or is it trying to find hope in a bunch of stuff that this world, we, we know is not going to last. We know it doesn't last, even in our own lifetimes. Church, let's, let's remember what God has done. Praise him for it and recognize that glorifying him in that way is a key aspect of passing it on to the next generation. Biologically, spiritually, our neighbors, as Caleb so well led us to consider, how might our praise make disciples? That's what's happened with the, the psalmist here. That's how he knows to praise God for the salvation that he's brought. And yet, he finds himself in a circumstance that's very, very different. In this next section, we see from 9 to the end, in verse 26, he's lamenting righteous suffering. You can write that in your notes. Lament righteous suffering. Let's look again at that shift in tone in verse 9, that conjunction, but. And then he begins through verse 14, this list of things that God has done. You, 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 you. Let me read it again. I want you to think about the development, what happens here. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. So God's not with the armies, so there's not victory out on the field. Verse 10, you've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. Not only is there not victory, but when they lose, they're getting their stuff taken away. All the, the, the things that, <laughs> whether it's uh, their land, their uh, possessions, um, their livelihoods, uh, their crops. Who knows what all is being taken away in this time? We, we don't know exactly what the story is here, but we can imagine because of this picture that the psalmist is giving us. Verse 11, you've made us like sheep for slaughter, literally sheep for meat, and have scattered us among the nations. 
You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Track the progression there as you look through those verses. It goes from losing a battle to now they're enslaved to now they are an example of destruction, an example of disgrace. That's what that idea that they're a byword among the nations, a laughingstock. You may have a footnote there, a shaking of the head, a Hebrew idiom to, to show that the nations know about this disgrace. The nations know about the suffering that's happening in this time. And the psalmist is broken over this. And, and I think this is where we are tempted to preach a false gospel to ourselves. Uh, we are tempted to say, okay, okay, I, all this is bad is happening. Well, let me tell you, um, there's something you must be doing wrong here uh, because bad stuff doesn't happen to Christians. I mean, not like this bad, like some bad stuff, but not like really bad stuff. So there's something you're doing wrong, so we'll, we'll figure it out. The psalmist has something to say to that. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, God. We've not been false to your covenant. That's a bold claim. Let's see how he defends it. Verse 18, our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So we followed on your path, God, but where has he taken them? The place of jackals covered us with the shadow of death. Both of those phrases there, again, two more Hebrew idioms talking about places of deep darkness, places of desolation, places that admittedly in other parts of Scripture are usually talking about how God brings judgment against the disobedient. But the psalmist is saying, okay, you've brought us to this place of destruction, but we've not forgotten you. That we're not perfect. I don't think the psalmist is making that case here. He's just saying, we haven't forgotten your covenant. He, we, he just spent eight verses praising God for what God has done. Why is God allowing them to be in this place of destruction and disgrace? He keeps on going. He says, if we'd forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? What we, this, this psalm is such a, it's a, such a great exploration of God's attributes. The, the writer knows who God is. The writer knows his Bible. The writer knows salvation. And yet his conclusion to all this that's happening in verse 22 is, God, it seems like for your sake we're killed all the day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. All the day long, uh, you could translate as continually. Maybe another option there. Where he's praised God continually, he's saying, we're being killed continually. Where there was a sword that was bringing victory, that same sword is now cutting down sheep for meat. Do you find any empathy with the psalmist here? Moments in life where you've praised God for his salvation, you've followed after his leading, He's led you uh, to, to be missional with your neighbors, to, to invite them. He's led you to be missional abroad, and you're seeking opportunities there. Maybe he's led you in a particular way uh, to 
sacrifice a particular thing uh, as a means of worship, and you're finding immense hardship in this season. You're honestly going, God, I, I'm following after you. I, I think this is what you told me to do. I think you, you, you're sending us in this direction. I, I know you're a loving God. I, I know you've brought salvation. And yet my life just, it just looks like this shadow of death. This, this broken vessel. It just, it, I, I'm just seeing the pieces. I'm not seeing the whole. That's why the psalmist ends this psalm in the way that he does. And b- before I look at it, I, I just want to just kind of dig into our hearts a little bit there. I mentioned earlier, I think we can be tempted to preach a false gospel to ourselves. Um, we're going to look at Genesis 3 next week and the, the results of the fall, the curse that God brings. We know from Scripture there are consequences to sin, immense consequences to sin. And throughout our lives, we learn those well if we allow the Lord to teach us. But sometimes I think we're tempted to look at our circumstances and think, you know what, if I would just do this different thing, it'll fix it. Then I won't have the money problems I'm having because God doesn't want me to have those. So, I, you know, I'll get out of that. If I, could just, if I could really just convince this person, just really grab them by the shoulders and sit them down, then they'll become a Christian. Then their lives will turn around. If I, if I will just do something a little bit different, I can fix this. G- Jesus had a moment like this where he, he had a blind man and, and the Pharisees came to him and they were like, okay, so Jesus, what, was it the blind man who sinned that made him blind or was it his parents? Or was it somebody else? What was Jesus' response? No, wrong question. <laughs> it's for the glory of God. God is going to work in and through this suffering. That's why the psalmist, I believe, responds in the way that he does. Look at that in verse 23. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Uh, We'll see that kind of language show up next week, right? Uh, Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love. Christian, I, I want to encourage you to have prayers as honest as this one in your prayer life. We need honest prayer. You can write that down. Lament righteous suffering through honest prayer. Every time Jesus teaches about prayer in the New Testament, I wish I had time to walk through all of them, but just to summarize, it's amazing the amount of compassion that he points to in God our Father who listens. God can handle your honest prayer. We may want to dig in here and be, well, God doesn't sleep, and, you know, there, there's going to be a good thing just around the corner, Psalmist. You, you just, I mean, you're being a little downer, I mean, right? Well, no, he, he's looking honestly at the situation and saying, God, you promised to be with us. And, and you've proven that by bringing us into this land and establishing us. So what's happening here? Christian, it's good for you to go to God and say, what is happening here? Because if you go to the world with those questions, if we try to figure it out in our own minds, 
I promise you, we're going to get the wrong answer. We're going to try to fix it in our own way. We're going to try to paint a happy smile on top of things. We're going to encounter people who are suffering in our lives, and we're going to say, oh, you don't have to be sad because just right around the corner, it's going to get better. Chin up. It's going to be a great time. Everything's, you know, everything gets better naturally. This psalm teaches us so well to be a good sufferer, like Job, and not to be like Job's friends who tried to come up with the answers, who end up distorting the truth about God in their aim to make sense of it all, rather than Job who simply turns to God and says, what is happening here? What are you doing? And by the way, God doesn't give an answer at the end of Job, does he? That's not the hope. The hope isn't in the answer in the same way that that this psalm does not end with the answer The editor of the Psalms didn't come back in here and say, you know what, actually, footnote, this is what happened. The next week after the psalmist wrote this, everything turned, the battle was won, whatever, whatever. We don't get that. We don't know how God is going to specifically work in and through the different sufferings that we endure. But we know who our God is, who is with us, and who is working in those situations. And that's good news. That's what the psalmist is holding on to. That last line, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Again, such an evidence of the psalmist's knowledge of who God is. He's not saying redeem us because this is really hard. Though I think he, I mean, in our minds, he kind of like you have a right to say that, right? Redeem us because this is awful. Redeem us because this has been going on for far too long. Redeem us for any number of other reasons. No, redeem us, God, because I know that you love your people. And I know that you did not call us for random chance or just to take us for a moment and cast us aside. His hope is in the character of God. Our hope has to be in the same place when we encounter these moments. When I think about who we just prayed for this morning, the Christians in Sudan, I think about the Christians living in Nigeria over the last couple years of space, severe persecution. The ultimate hope that they have is in the character of God. It's in his love for them. And so as we pray and as we long for suffering to be abated, for, for all the wrong, all the brokenness in the governments, in the attacks, in the violence, as we long for those things to be made right, We need to realize that our hope for today and their hope for today is in the character of God. And and I want to show that to us by way of traveling through the cross and making clear why we can have such a hope in this character of God. The Bible is filled with examples of, of people of faith who throughout the Old Testament cried out to God in this way. You think of Joseph, Job, I mentioned, um, Hannah, Samuel. You've got all kinds of guys that are in situations and it's not their fault. But God is doing mighty things through it. But of course, our hope is in the one who ultimately endured a suffering beyond anything that we can imagine. And it was certainly not his fault. And yet he willingly endured it for us. Isaiah 53 says that God put him to grief 
the God who is the king with the sword that brings victory. The God who is steadfast love. The God who provides for his people became like the slaughtered sheep. He became the one who walked through the deep darkness, the shadow of death, who experienced the haunt of jackals, the desolation. He's the one who Mark and Matthew both talk about the people were wagging their heads at him, that he was a laughingstock, an example of disgrace. And yet, as in the same chapter that Preston read uh, at the start of service, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate display of God's love was the fact that he took on the ultimate suffering for us, the suffering that was because of sin. And even beyond that, the suffering of the brokenness of a, you think about all the things that Jesus went through. I mean, you can just go back to verses 9 through 14 and think about how his life followed that path to death. And not just death, but as the Bible talks about death on a cross, a disgraceful death, a death for a criminal. That's what Jesus, our Savior, did for us. And yet, we have so much hope because Christ rose again. Like we said earlier, he he gave us victory through his resurrection. And so as we lament righteous suffering through this uh, honest prayer, uh, the last phrase for this section, we would do so in a way that remembers God's salvation comes back to the beginning again. Again, that's, that's the only hopeful connection we could find in that last verse, verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love because I know that you are a God who loves his people and who saves them. In Romans 8, Paul unpacks this in a particular way that I think is impactful for us in closing. Um, after he talks about the salvation over several chapters that we've received because of the suffering of Christ, that brought us salvation. In in Romans chapter 8, he declares that Christ has set us free from sin and death. He's given us life in his spirit. And not only that, but God has adopted us as his sons who share in the inheritance of Jesus. There's a verse in there. I encourage you to just read all of Romans 8 later. Um, But for sake of time, the provided we share in his suffering is is a really big phrase there. God has adopted us as sons who share in the inheritance of Jesus both in his suffering and his glory. And here's how he gives us hope in that. In the last few verses of the chapter, Romans 8, starting in verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, quoting Psalm 44, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I love about Romans 8, Paul's quoting Psalm 44 as a way of reminding us that the suffering of God's people is real. And as we know from the New Testament, it is something that Jesus has called his followers to follow him in. We know that we will suffer as Christians. And yet, in that, even in the life of Jesus, we have a great hope that after the suffering of Christ comes his great renewal, his great return to life, his resurrection. And so as we walk through the suffering that we endure, as we think of our brothers and sisters in Sudan, in Nigeria, in places around the world suffering, our hope is not just that things will get better. Our hope is not just like, well, you know, we'll try to make things better. We'll try to make some better governments. We'll try to make some better situations. We'll try to not fight as much. No. We're not the one who brings salvation. In Psalm 44, the psalmist in Israel is saying, hey, we're not the ones with the sword bringing victory. God, you are. And so Paul says in this moment, no, 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 God, you are. Another way to translate verse 37, no, in all these things, we have an overwhelmingly conquering victory. We have this immense victory in Jesus in the one who loved us, such that there's nothing that can separate us from him. So ultimately, our salvation in Christ has brought us this overwhelming victory. It's exceeding that of all previous conquerors, including Joshua and those in, uh, in Joshua 24, including Israel in, in this time, any hope that they might have. Because in Christ, God's covenant love for us will never fail. Nothing will ever separate us from his love. Believer, it, it can be really hard in a, in a time of suffering to hear, turn to God, cling to him. Because when you've boiled down God to just things you want out of God, we get really frustrated. I don't want to turn back to the one who's just going to make me go through another valley. I don't want to turn back to the one who's just going to take me through more suffering. But Christian, our our hope that we have in Jesus, it so far outshines the sufferings of this world. There is nothing to compare to it. And our only hope and reminder in that is to look to Christ himself, who Hebrews says, endured the cross, despised the shame, and we can have that same hope. We can have that same endurance because his spirit lives in us. So Christian, consider this week. When you face suffering, what will it look like to remember God's salvation, to continue to praise in the midst of it, even as this psalmist did, to let that praise make disciples of others in your life? Christian, what will it look like to lament righteous suffering, pray for 
the persecuted church. Pray for those truly suffering in your life. Weep with them. Share that with them, even as Christ did. And to do so by turning to God in honest prayer. And as you do, remember the hope that we have in Jesus. But as we're encountering those in our lives who aren't Christians, and maybe some of you in here haven't put your faith in Jesus, know that there is no other hope. There's no better hope. That's, that's not a message of despair. It's a message of victory that Jesus is the only one who can carry the weight of sin and death. It's a message of comfort that God alone is the one who doesn't just say, oh, I'll check up on you later, but is actually walking through suffering with us. Let's be the church that intersects with the suffering, with the hope of the gospel. Whether one another, whether our neighbors, our coworkers, family members, friends, there will be suffering, but there's great hope in Christ who loves us. Let's pray. God, you alone are worthy of worship, and this psalm, as dark and difficult as it is, the, the truths that are in it, as at times frustrating as they are in my life, and I know in the lives of so many in this room, God, I know that you love us. All it takes is a, a remembrance of who Christ is and what he's done for us to, to be made aware of that again. And, and God, I, I pray that you would continue to let us be a church that remembers your salvation well. Our songs, our words, our actions, that they would all be brought together in this glorifying discipleship that makes much of you because you are our king. And God, we ask that you would command deliverance, that you would bring deliverance to those, even in this room, that are suffering. We do lament the very real and difficult things that you allow and that you even take us as your people through. We can't see the full picture. We don't know the full answer. But we know that one day, and we know that your son will return and will make all things new. We know that Revelation talks about that we'll overcome by the word of our testimony, by the blood of the Lamb. God, help us to be in awe of you and help us to rely on that victory and that method. God, I pray that you would help us to draw near to you this morning. I pray that we'd praise you wherever we're at, that we'd be honest with you knowing that you have been more than honest with us. More than that, you've been gracious to us. You've shown us love in Christ. And so we worship you in his name. Amen.